welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm your host, Negar Mortazavi, a journalist and political analyst and a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy in Washington. In this episode, we'll talk about the current conflict in the Middle East, Iran's role and influence in this conflict, and Tehran's broader policy towards the region. My guest today is Mehran Kamrava, a professor of government at Georgetown University, Qatar, also director of Iranian studies at the Arab Center in Doha. Mehran is the author of numerous books on Iran and the Persian Gulf, and most recently his book, Righteous Politics, Power and Resilience in Iran. Mehran, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you for having me, Nagar. It's a pleasure being here. It's a pleasure to have you. Let's start with the current conflict, actually the beginning of the conflict, the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th and subsequent reporting that Iran knew about the attack, didn't know about the attack. Eventually, U.S. intelligence indicated that Tehran may have actually been surprised by the attack or the extent of it. Talk about what your assessment is looking, especially at Tehran's reaction of how much uh, they may have been involved in the October 7th attack. Like everyone else, Tehran was also very surprised by the October 7th attack. The Hamas leadership, political leadership based here in Doha, didn't even know about the attack. And so the Iranians had absolutely no idea. They were just as surprised. I think... Um, no one guessed that or no one could could have imagined that Hamas was capable of carrying out such an attack. Subsequent to the attack, we have now found out that the Israeli intelligence knew as long as a year ago that Hamas was planning uh, an attack, but they even dismissed it as quite unlikely. Um, and so Tehran was completely caught off guard. And what we saw was that in the initial week, Tehran, like almost everybody else, didn't really know how to react and how to handle the fallout from the uh, October 7 attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mehran, but people ask, how is that possible? Because Hamas is seen as an ally or a proxy even of Tehran, they support them politically, um, financially, even militarily. How is it possible that an attack that had been in the works or planned uh, for so long was something that came as a surprise, even to the leadership in Doha, as you're saying, and to Tehran? Well, I think um, it's, it's natural for all of us to dismiss the extent to which Palestinians in general, and Hamas in particular, um, have been determined to continue the resistance. Now, let me just say that the October 7 attack was horrendous and um, an absolute crime. But uh, I think we also need to understand the the fact that uh, it was carried out due to a determination by the Palestinians or at least by Hamas, and by particular groups within Hamas, a particular faction within Hamas, to ensure that the Palestinian resistance continues, and that this attack is seen uh, by the Palestinians and by the 
wider world as a symbol of Palestinian resistance. So, uh, you know, um, if, if we look at history, uh, when in 1973 the Egyptians crossed the Suez Canal in October, again in Yom Kippur, uh, everybody was surprised. And no one assumed that the Egyptians could carry out such an attack. And I, history has repeated itself because, again, in October of 2023, we ask ourselves, well, how could Hamas have carried out such an attack? And I, I think when there is a determination and a will, then, of course, um, uh, there's innovation and some sort of uh, determination uh, to lash out and uh, do something. Mehran, let's take a broader look at the so-called axis of resistance, Mehvar Mugavimat, as Tehran calls it, since multiple non-state actors like the Houthis, Hezbollah, the Shia militias in Iraq um, have one way or the other been inserting themselves into this conflict or being pulled in. And I want to ask you about each of these different forces. But first, talk about this axis of resistance, what it is, how it was formed, and its relationship with Tehran. Uh, that's an excellent question. The so-called axis of resistance is made up of a very loose and amorphous network of groups that are primarily non-state actors that aim to challenge the status quo. And this challenge of status quo is largely at Tehran's behest and at Tehran's moral leadership and direction. But it isn't always at Tehran's logistic um, um, orchestration. Uh, or, you know, it's not as if uh, Tehran can tell these guys, this is what we want you to do, and they do it. Um, in broad terms, uh, the so members of this axis of resistance, these non-state militia groups, take their cues from Tehran, and um, at different times, uh, they do different things. Um, a lot of them are, by and large, independent actors and independent agents. Nonetheless, they act at Tehran's behest. And one of the things that we've seen is that Tehran has been encouraging this axis of resistance to increase the costs of Israel's uh, attack on Gaza, increase the cost for Israel and for the Americans. So what Tehran wants to do is it doesn't want to engage Israel directly as much as Israel wants that to happen because that would bring in the United States. But what Tehran wants to do is through ramping up hit-and-run attacks against American and Israeli interests is to A, divert the attention of Israel as much as possible away from the Gaza theater, and B, to increase the costs on Israel by having engaged in a low-intensity war of attrition over time that over time increases the costs uh, for Israel. This is, again, very similar to what Gamal Abdel Nasser, the former Egyptian president, did after 1967 in the Sinai 
engaging in these kinds of uh, hit and run attacks, um, hoping to um, kind of kill a few soldiers here, a few soldiers there, and that would over time increase the cost uh, for Israel. Rightly mm-hmm. or wrongly, the assumption here in the region is that as a small state, Israel cannot afford a prolonged war, that it wants to engage in a high-intensity uh, conflict that is massive but uh, uh, very intense and in a short, for a short duration, rather than a, a conflict that is spread out over time. And so what we see is that Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon releases a couple of missiles every once in a while. The Houthis, as you mentioned, are now lobbing some missiles and attacking ships, and Iraqi militia are attacking American bases. And Iran is saying, no, it's not at our direction. These guys are independent. They're doing it themselves. What you need to do is to stop the Gaza war so that there is no escalation of the conflict. So what we're seeing now is a very complicated, very complex, and I might add a very dangerous role that Mm -hmm. Iran and these um, uh, affiliated militia groups are playing, trying to increase the costs of the war without escalating uh, and and without running the risk of escalation. Mm-hmm. And we know, at least here in Washington, the understanding is that the United States, the Biden administration, certainly doesn't want an escalation of this war, a bigger, wider war across the region. But it's not clear what the strategy in Israel is. And just recent reporting was suggesting that uh, there may be, um, or there is fear of an escalation with Hezbollah and essentially opening the northern front more than what it is now. Do you think Hezbollah, and then by way of that, Tehran, want an escalation in the northern front? And if not, as you were saying, what would happen if that front opens? How would Tehran react? Would they eventually enter this conflict or will they continue to sit out? That's really difficult to tell. I also have heard those reports that um, once Gaza has been completely neutralized um, and probably depopulated sufficiently to the liking of Israeli political leaders, then they're going to go after um, uh, after Hezbollah uh, in the north. As you remember, when uh, Hassan Nasrallah spoke a couple of weeks ago, Uh, he clearly um, did not escalate and was clearly calling for de-escalation. Again and again, Iranian leaders have called for de-escalation. But as you mentioned, whether that is something that the Israeli leadership uh, wants is a completely different story. We know, uh, incidentally, that Netanyahu is in deep political trouble domestically in Israel. And that the outbreak of this conflict uh, has only deepened uh, the political trouble he is in. So he has all incentives to prolong the conflict as much as possible uh, by engaging in um, these uh, conflicts that he knows he can win, uh, going after Hamas, then going after Hezbollah. And 
will this bring Iran eventually into the conflict? Again, that's hard to tell. What we have seen is a remarkable level of political pragmatism on the part of the Iranian leadership. They simply uh, do not want to engage Israel on Israel's terms. Uh, If they do engage Israel, they want it to be on their own terms in terms of this kind of lower intensity war of attrition, which I mentioned earlier. And so I think as far as Tehran is concerned, they will do anything and everything possible not to uh, enter into conflict. Mm-hmm. Mehran, let's also talk about the internal dynamics in Iran, the various political factions. We know the hardliners in a way consolidated power in the last parliamentary election, and then they took over the presidency. Are you seeing any disagreement in Tehran on how to proceed or how to approach this conflict? Or is it more of a unison and agreement on what the policy should be? If there are any uh, political discussions or debates inside Iran, we certainly outside um, or outside of the political establishment are not hearing them in the same way that we were, for example, during the Rouhani presidency, when there was open debate and dissent within the ranks of the inner circle of policymaking groups inside Iran. Uh, And and right now, uh, we're not seeing anything. Uh, uh, Interestingly, the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, have been remarkably silent. Um, What we have seen is... Uh, there's been um, uh, uh, the foreign minister, Amir Abdullahian, has been extremely proactive in trying to rally the diplomatic, um, um, kind of a diplomatic front uh, traveling across the Persian Gulf and uh, to different parts um, uh, of the region as much as possible. Khamenei himself came out and gave a speech in which again he sound uh, he w- wanted he didn't did not advocate for escalation and he himself said we didn't know about this but we supported we did know about October 7 but we supported so um, we are seeing a remarkable and in fact rather unique level of policy uniformity coming out of Tehran um, uh, at least in relation uh, uh, to Israel's war on Gaza. Mm-hmm. And going back to the axis of resistance and the proxies, can you explain sort of the, maybe not the hierarchy, but the importance of these various actors and their relationship to Tehran? We know, for example, Hezbollah is a much closer ally, more significant, strategic for Tehran compared to, let's say, Hamas. The Houthis in Yemen are part of that, and also the Shia militias in Iraq who are now getting involved with the U.S. Talk about how Tehran sees each of these elements and how close or far they are in their alliance. Uh, Negar, that's an, another excellent question. First of all, let's just start with the, uh, the fact that for soldiers, wars never end, and for these uh, militia, Uh, If there is stability in one area or if there is some sort of uh, political deal in one area, they look for other areas. 
to to uh, kind of remain active and to find a new cause. So, for example, uh, what we're seeing is that um, while the Houthis signed a ceasefire with Saudi Arabia, now they're looking for some new cause to go after, and and of course now they found. Uh, belatedly, they found the Palestinian cause, and uh, they're trying to remain active that way. And interestingly, uh, you know, this is what we also see in relation to the Iraqi militia. As there's stability in Iraq, as the Americans have uh, reduced their presence inside Iraq significantly, um, they were looking for something new to do. They had turned on each other, the Iraqi militia. And now suddenly there's kind of newfound uh, unity again. And so they have a new cause to rally around and to uh, uh, maintain their uh, military mobilization. So I think that's one key factor to remember. Another key factor is the relationship between Tehran and each of these groups. Uh, On the one hand, there is a a kind of close coordination and collaboration, while on the other hand, Tehran has also in many ways given itself plausible deniability, that it can say, look, we're not necessarily directing these guys, Uh, um, uh, they're acting uh, on their own. Now, um, it's almost an article of faith uh, that uh, the Houthis, for example, um, act as at uh, Iran's behest. Even if that's not the case, that is certainly the way the outside world sees it. You cannot listen to a report by CNN or Al Jazeera or any of the other media outlets mentioning the Houthis without the prefix Iran-supported Houthis. So even if Iran doesn't support them, the assumption and appearance outside of Iran certainly is that each of these um, militia groups are acting on Iran's behest. The way Iran sees them is that they are part of its strategic depth and they're part of its ability to uh, deter Israel and the United States. So they don't necessarily want to use each of these groups for offensive purposes, but if it comes to it, they will uh, use the Iraqi militia or the Houthis, Hamas, others, uh, for defensive purposes to ensure that they are um, uh, strategically important groups aimed for deterrence, uh, uh, deterring the possibility of uh, of an attack, a preemptive attack on Iran. Mm-hmm. Mehran, I want to also ask you about Iran's regional policy towards state actors. We talked about Israel, the non-state actors, but uh, let's talk about Iran vis-a-vis its Arab neighbors, especially the Persian Gulf where you are in Qatar. We have seen somewhat of a shift in recent years. Iran and Saudi had an agreement or a rapprochement brokered by China. And this conflict has also created some shifts in the region. The Abraham Accords, um, that normalization seems to be on ice. I don't know for how much longer, especially the big one the with between Israel and Saudi Arabia that uh, the Biden administration was really investing in. Um, so let's talk about how this conflict, you think, has changed, if any, 
Iran's outlook and policy towards its uh, the region, its neighbors? Well, we know that uh, that Raisi administration has not had a lot of success domestically. Um, some economic indicators uh, in Iran are looking in the right direction, but that has not yet translated into people's actual earnings. So as far as domestic politics in Iran are concerned, the Raisi administration has not been a success. However, it is important to point out that at least as far as Tehran is concerned, there have been notable successes in Iranian foreign policy as far as the Raisi administration is concerned. And these uh, successes have been in the form of the so-called Look East policy and in relation to your specific question in terms of the good neighbor uh, policy. Iran has launched what it calls the good neighbor policy, whereby it has sought to not only reduce tensions with its neighbors, and it has had uh, a number of tension with its, uh, tensions with its neighbors, but it has sought to actually improve relations and deepen collaboration and cooperation. So there have been tension reduction measures in relation to Afghanistan, in relation to Azerbaijan, nor a, a re-establishment of ties with Saudi Arabia, a deepening of relations with uh, the UAE. Uh, there have been positive signals between Iran and Egypt. And of course, then this happens, the, the, uh, the Gaza war happens, and uh, that has uh, given substance to Iran's proactive diplomacy, particularly here in the Persian Gulf region, with Amir Abdullahian um, visiting regional capitals, trying to rally up uh, support. Uh, Raisi himself met with um, uh, Saudi Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who effectively is running uh, Saudi Arabia. And so what we see is that uh, Iran has used this crisis as an opportunity to enhance and deepen its relations and to give meaning and substance to its good neighborly policy. Mm -hmm. And Mehran, how has, because I know you followed the region's politics also very closely beyond just Iran, how do you think this conflict will change the regional policy of the various states, especially from your viewpoint in the Persian Gulf, as I said, uh, the Abraham Accords is on ice. The Israeli-Saudi normalization is, you know, the future of that is unclear. How much do you think this Palestinian issue, which is now back at the top of everyone's, maybe not agenda, but attention, is going to change that regional dynamic? Tragically, I don't think the changes will be lasting and would have uh, a lot of um, resilience. I think um, the region uh, we have seen for decades now, uh, nobody except the Palestinians really cares about Palestine or the Palestinians. Um, uh, the Palestinian uh, dilemma, the Palestinian question. Um, everybody uses Palestine for instrumentalist purposes. And by everybody, I mean all Middle Eastern countries. They 
uh, talk about Palestine. They use it as rhetoric, but they've been, um, uh, but their approach towards Palestine, Palestinians, has always been instrumentalist um, rather than uh, in depth, meaningful, and substantive. And uh, five years from now, I think everybody here in the region is going to look at 2023 and the massacre that's going on right now as another uh, episode in Middle Eastern history. You know, Palestinian dispossession is nothing new. Uh, Palestinian ethnic cleansing has been going on for decades, and uh, the regional actors, state actors, have been quite okay with it. Uh, They haven't done anything. And right now, for example, only one or two countries have withdrawn their ambassadors from um, Tel Aviv in protest. One or two of the Persian Gulf countries. I know f- only of Bahrain, for example. Um, uh, and so I don't think much is going to happen. Um, in a couple of years, uh, most likely, the um, normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel will happen. That ship has already sailed. It might sail somewhat slower now after uh, what's going on, but I think um, the normalization will uh, will happen eventually between Saudi Arabia and Israel, because uh, if you listen to the statements coming out of um, Riyadh, uh, statements made by Israeli leaders, um, I think that will definitely happen. Mohammed bin Salman wants to use that as his uh, as one of his trump cards to get maximum concessions uh, and security guarantees from the United States. And so there's an imperative uh, on all sides for this to be done. And so looking down the line, Negar, uh, you know, in a couple of years, I don't think much would have changed uh, in terms of where we are today. Mm-hmm. And so... That would bring me to my final question, again, from a Washington outlook. I want you to give your assessment of the Biden administration's policy towards the region, you know, starting with diplomacy or the promise of diplomacy with Iran, a return to the JCPOA, which hasn't happened, um, them essentially championing the Abraham Accords or the Arab-Israeli normalization, and ignoring basically the question or the issue of Palestine. How do you assess the admin's policy? They're getting a lot of criticism here in Washington globally. It doesn't seem like it has moved them much, but I want to hear what you think of the Middle East policy of the Biden administration. I think that criticism is extremely well-deserved. This has been an administration whose foreign policy has been uh, characterized by either non-existence or uh, abject failure. Um, They haven't done anything. But I have to say that if we look at a history of American presidential administrations, usually they don't do anything diplomatically that is meaningful in their first term. American presidents have historically, if they have been re-elected, have only done meaningful stuff in terms of America's diplomatic interests around the world in their second term 
and more specifically in the last two years of their second term when they're not worried about congressional elections and when the president becomes worried about uh, their presidential legacy in, in longer term. So uh, we saw this in relation to um, Clinton. We saw it in relation to uh, George W. Bush. We saw it with Obama and the JCPOA. Uh, so, you know, uh, this administration has been uh, probably deliberately absent in the global arena. And as a result, it has really in many ways pushed itself into a corner. The fact that now we see Biden trying to rein in Israel's onslaught of uh, Palestinians, um, it's a little too little too late um, because for so long, uh, this administration after October, uh, the horrendous uh, attack of October 7th, uh, repeatedly kind of gave Israel carte blanche to do whatever it wanted. And now it's a little too late and disingenuous for the president of the United States to come out and say, well, you know what? Israel is beginning to lose global support. Um, That should have been said uh, about a month ago before we had these massive demonstrations across Europe, of course, here in the uh, Middle East and everywhere else, Um, uh, trying to stop the massacre of Palestinians. So the administration has been um, notably absent in terms of any kind of a leadership uh, uh, diplomatically. Mm -hmm. And just a follow-up to that, Mehran, from your vantage point, how does the region see the United States after this episode the Biden administration and the broader U.S. government, because as you're saying, the, the, the president said they are losing global support and there is a lot of criticism across the world, but specifically in the region. Well, uh, the Persian Gulf states, uh, apart from Iran, have been very careful not to directly criticize the United States. Because although there is an assumption that America's role in the Persian Gulf region has been reduced over the last decade or so, there is still close diplomatic, uh, political, economic, and even cultural relations between the U.S. and countries like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, uh, Bahrain, uh, UAE. Quite frankly, Oman is the only state in the GCC that has been quite um, vocal in criticizing America's repeated vetoes of um, uh, Security Council resolutions calling for an immediate ceasefire. Uh, Nobody else has really said anything of substance uh, or meaning. But what America is losing is credibility among the peoples of the Middle East. The proverbial Mm -hmm. street of the Middle East is now even uh, more sensitive to America's blatant hypocrisy of uh, calling Russia's war on Ukraine a crime against humanity, but refusing to support ceasefire uh, against Gaza. Mm Well, on that note, Mehran, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Nagar. Thank you very much for having me. 
That was Mehran Kamrava, a professor of government at Georgetown University, Qatar, and director of Iranian studies at the Arab Center, who is joining me from Doha in Qatar. And thank you for listening to the Iran podcast. You can find us on all major podcast apps, so do subscribe, and if you can, leave a review and rating for us. You can also follow us on Twitter or X at Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtazavi, and until next time, goodbye.